On May 4, 1951, less than a month after he was fired by President Harry S. Truman, General Douglas MacArthur testified for the second straight day before the Senate Armed Services and Foreign Relations Committees in a closed-door investigation of the administration's policies in the Far East. A Republican attempt to open the hearings to the public was defeated on a party-lines vote. Sal the Barber Magley pitched a one-hitter as the New York Giants beat the Pittsburgh Pirates 5-1 to before just 3,947 fans at the Polo Grounds in New York. The Giants remained in last place in the National League, six games behind the first-place Boston Braves. And, 70 years later, on May 4, 2021, this podcast began with Where Have You Gone, Norman Corwin? Where Have You Gone? The First Season. Welcome to Where Have You Gone? People, places, and things that are gone but not forgotten, forgotten but not gone, and the people and places saving these stories for your enjoyment and benefit today. I'm Morris Eckhaus. The whole idea of Where Have You Gone? is to shine a spotlight on subjects that deserve to be better remembered, either in total or in specific aspects that may not get as much attention as they should. The idea is not to do a show and have it become forgotten. The purpose of this episode of Where Have You Gone? is to look back at our first season. 13 episodes, 12 people, one place, and say a bit more about each of them. If you have not already listened to any of those episodes, I hope you will. I hope you'll help us spread the word about these subjects that are as important now as they were then. When we started out, the plan was to focus on subjects with a connection to the mid-20th century, and most of our first 13 subjects are writers, either primarily or secondarily. It turned out that the first five episodes of Where Have You Gone?, Norman Corwin, Carl Sandburg, Rod Serling, Charles Einstein, and Mark Harris can first and foremost be described as writers. Our sixth episode was the first and only of the first season about a place rather than a person. Where Have You Gone Forbes Field was actually the first episode we finished, but it was the sixth episode released and marked something of a transition from the writers to the entertainers. Nat King Cole, Jack Warden, Jack Webb, Blake Edwards, and Walter Matthau were all on-screen entertainers at points or throughout their careers. It's a stretch to call Howard Rodman and Dorothy Fuldheim entertainers, but Rodman was an entertainment writer, and Fuldheim was certainly entertaining. When this episode of Where Have You Gone continues, I'll look back at our first six episodes and give you some additional information and updates about them. Norman Corwin, the subject of our first episode, generally wrote for The Common Man, and that probably explains some of his affinity for Carl Sandburg. In 2017, I visited the Thousand Oaks 
Grant R. Brimhall Public Library in Thousand Oaks, California, and its special collections room with an extensive collection of the papers of Norman Corwin. Among them was a travel schedule for the world of Carl Sandburg from October 12 to December 12 in 1959, with scheduled stops in Boston, Brooklyn, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Buffalo, Toronto, Detroit, and Chicago. The first performance was October 12, 1959 at the State Theater in Portland, Maine. On my birthday, October 29, 1959, the play was performed at Constitution Hall in Washington, D.C. With the chronology of performances, it's possible to search the Internet and find information, such as a review of the Boston performances by Peter D. in the October 30, 1959 issue of The Heights, the newspaper of Boston University, in the column titled Second Balcony. D. wrote, The essence of this show lies in its simplicity, originality, and river-like flow. There is never a boring moment in the show, and unhappily, the evening seems to pass away far too quickly. Much credit must be given to Norman Corwin for his uncanny sense of variation and his perfect connecting dialogue between Sandberg's works that contributed greatly to the show's uninterrupted flow. I came across another review in the papers at Thousand Oaks. This one, dated April 11, 1960, was written by Charles Einstein for the San Francisco Examiner. He wrote, The World of Carl Sandburg, now on view at the Alcazar, is in every measure a genuine delight. He went on to praise the performances of the three-person cast of Betty Davis, Gary Merrill, and Clark Allen. It really is a small world. Not too long ago, I purchased Veronica, the autobiography of Veronica Lake. It's a 2020 reissue of her autobiography, first published in 1969. The reissue has a new introduction written by Eddie Muller, who was so helpful connecting me with Wallace Strobe for our episode about Charles Einstein. I was not expecting to find a reference to Carl Sandburg in a book about Veronica Lake, but there it is near the end of the book. She wrote, I hate Sandberg. She had met him on an elevator in the 1950s, and she called him out for being rude to the elevator operator. Nevertheless, Lake took the lead in a production of The World of Carl Sandberg in 1967 to benefit the Hub Theater Center. She wrote, It was one of the finest moments of my life. I cried a few times on stage later during one of Sandberg's more poignant pieces. It's titled, Out of Windows Look Mother Faces. Sandberg also shows up in a piece written by Mark Harris for Life magazine in 1961. The article is titled, Old Enough to Know, Young Enough to Care. It's included in the book short work of it, Selected Writing by Mark Harris. It's a profile of the two great elder poets of the time, Sandberg and Robert Frost. It's of its time, insightful, and an interesting comparison of the two men. On our Rod Serling episode, we talked about Serling's work that does not get the recognition of Twilight Zone or Night Gallery. Its mental work is such a show. Serling adapted the John O'Hara story for an episode of Bob Hope Presents the Chrysler Theater 
from 1963. On June 3, 2021, the UCLA Film and Television Archive gave a rare showing of Serling's award-winning It's Mental Work. The post-screening interview with Serling's daughter Anne is still available on the internet. The previous year, Anne Serling participated in a new audio presentation of her dad's baseball story, O'Toole from Moscow. It can be heard at wvxu.org, Cincinnati Public Radio. At the time of this recording, the 2021 Serling Fest is scheduled to take place in Binghamton, New York, October 15 through 17. Visit the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation website, rodserling.com, for updates. I came across another Charles Einstein book after we did our episode about Charles Einstein. It's How to Communicate, The Manning, Selvage, and Lee Guide to Clear Writing and Speech. Manning, Selvage, and Lee was founded in 1938 and became one of the oldest and largest full-service international public relations agencies in the world. Einstein joined the firm in 1981 as senior vice president and editorial director. It's a slight book, 117 pages, but it offers numerous useful tips in the examples. And once again, regarding Wallace Strobe, congratulations on his new mystery novel, Heaven's a Lie, published earlier in 2021. It has gotten many glowing reviews, including one from Harlan Coben on NBC's Today Show. In our Mark Harris episode, I mentioned his appearance on You Bet Your Life, but not the praise paid to him by host Groucho Marx regarding his book, Wake Up, Stupid. I mentioned his son Henry, Mark Harris's son Henry, but did not mention that Henry has written a screenplay based on his father's book, Killing Everybody. In all or virtually all of the first 13 episodes, there was something I had to leave out for one reason or another. In the instance of Forbes Field, it was reference to the park in Paul Goldberger's outstanding book, Ballpark Baseball in the American City. Goldberger, a Pulitzer Prize winner for his writing about architecture, wrote about the Pittsburgh park that no other city could claim a Major League Baseball park as part of its cultural mix, either in 1909 or any time afterward. The geographical intersection of the park with other cultural institutions would have no examples other than Forbes Field at Shenley Park. Nat King Cole may be the best known of all the subjects we tackled in our first season. Nat King Cole falls into that category where he's very well known, but aspects of his career may not be so well known. And one of those we did not get to in our episode about Nat King Cole is Wild is Love, a concept album that had a bigger vision. Nat King Cole was always pushing the envelope, so to speak, and that was the case with Wild is Love. It's dealt with, as all of Cole's career is, with detail in Straighten Up and Fly Right by Will Friedwald, the life and music of Nat King Cole. Friedwald wrote that Wild is Love was an entirely original work that took the form of a capital album 
as well as a full-length TV special produced by Cole himself on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and later shown on American TV as well. It stands as one of the signature achievements of Cole's career, and in particular, the culmination of roughly two decades of work in the visual mediums of film and television. When the album was released on a compact disc in 2007, the liner notes were written by James Ritz, and Ritz also gives a good bit of detail regarding the project. He notes that on an historic note, this would be the last album project Nelson Riddle would work on with Nat King Cole. When the LP proved so popular that it rose to number four on the charts, it was Nat's sincere hope that a full-blown stage presentation based on the material could be mounted, tried out on the road, and eventually land on Broadway. Ritz notes the Canadian Broadcasting Company production, and he says, regrettably, North America was still not ready for a black leading man. Ritz points out that the goal of having this go on Broadway and be a new kind of a Broadway show was not achieved, and a compromise of sorts was uh, achieved by putting together a touring review called Sights and Sounds. But by the time that happened, Cole's health was in decline and, again, never reached Broadway the way that Nat King Cole had hoped it would. Ritz concludes, Wild is love with the springboard for the unfulfilled hopes and dreams of his later life. And if nothing else, it left us with a dynamic title song that is regarded as a Nat Cole classic and a seminal and superbly crafted album that was among his personal favorites. Down the road, we intend to do an episode about Marion Doherty, the legendary casting director, and one of our primary sources will be her autobiography, My Casting Couch Was Too Short. There's a good story in here about Jack Warden, one of our first season subjects. Burt Leonard had started producing another show for CBS called Route 66, and he enthusiastically used many of the Naked City actors I had found for him. In one of my many conversations with Bert about Naked City, I suggested the talented Jack Warden for a Route 66 role, after he'd shown in an episode of Naked City. Bert immediately said, great, I'll get him. An hour later, I got an outraged call from Millie Gus, the California casting director on Route 66. She was furious that I had invaded her professional territory, particularly since she'd also suggested Jack Warden for the same role, but Bert had already hired him on my recommendation. I apologized the best I could, considering the fact that as far as I was concerned, I was just doing my job. To avoid any further conflicts, I suggested a compromise to Bert. Since Route 66 was filmed all over the country, Millie should cast all episodes shot west of the Mississippi, and I would cast all the episodes east of the Mississippi. That ended up working very well for me, as from that day forward, there was never another episode of Route 66 shot west of the Mississippi. In our episode about Jack Webb, I mentioned a number of people that connected with Webb and that Webb connected with throughout his life and career. And one of the people who got cut out in that process 
was Martin Milner. The cast of Webb's film Pete Kelly's Blues included Martin Milner, who was already an established acting veteran at age 24, having started in films with 1947's Life with Father at age 15. Milner met Jack Webb when they both appeared in the 1951 film Halls of Montezuma. Webb used Milner in radio and the 1950s television episodes of Dragnet. Milner worked steadily in film and television up to his breakout role as Todd Stiles in the television series Route 66 from 1960 to 1964. He also appeared in the first season Twilight Zone episode Mirror Image. Who knows what might have happened with Milner's career had a pilot titled Star of the Yankees fared differently. According to a description at archive.org, the pilot was filmed in the late 1950s, but not shown until 1965 on Vacation Playhouse, a summer replacement series of unsold pilots. It was done for Ziv Television, with Milner starring as rookie Joe Starr, trying to make a comeback after being beaned earlier in his career. By 1968, Webb and R.A. Senator had created a new police drama for television focused on two radio car officers. It was called Adam-12, and Milner was cast as Officer Pete Malloy, co-starring with Kent McCord as Officer Jim Reed. Adam-12 ran from 1968 to 1975. When Adam-12 left the air in 1975, Milner continued to work regularly on television for the next two decades. Martin Milner was 83 years old when he died on September 6, 2015. I remain fascinated with the career of Howard Rodman, one of our first season subjects, and perhaps down the road I'll do a show about the radio and television series You Are There, for which Rodman was one of the writers. One of the directors on the program was Sidney Lumet, other writers on the program included Arnold Manoff, Walter Bernstein, and Abraham Polanski. The show gets a long chapter in the book, Channeling the Past, Politicizing History in Postwar America, by Eric Christensen. And whether or not we ever do a show on that subject, it's worth looking into and many of those shows can still be listened to in terms of the radio show and viewed in terms of the television show today. In our episode about Blake Edwards, I did not mention Waterhole Number 3, a film he did not write or direct, but he did produce it. The film stars James Coburn and Carol O'Connor. The Leonard Maltin Movie Guide gives it two and a half stars, and calls it an amusing Western comedy. A Splurge in the Kisser, the movies of Blake Edwards by Sam Wasson, says the film was part of a four-picture deal with Paramount, including Waterhole No. 3, Gun, a screen version of Mr. Lucky that never came to pass, and what became Darling Lily. The last subject of our first season was Dorothy Fuldheim. Where Have You Gone is not a religious show, and it was not intended that a preponderance of the subjects would be Jewish. But almost half of the subjects are Jewish, including Fuldheim, Corwin, Serling, Harris, Rodman, and Matthau. You can find articles about Fuldheim and Corwin 
at the website for Jewish Currents, jewishcurrents.org. Jewish Currents was founded in 1946 and is a magazine devoted to the rich tradition of thought, activism, and culture of the Jewish left. For this recap of our first season, I've saved Walter Matthau for last. There's a good bit about Matthau, not always complimentary, in the new biography of Mike Nichols by Mark Harris. Nichols directed Matthau in the stage version of The Odd Couple. Harris wrote, In Boston, almost by accident, Simon, that's Neil Simon, came up with what may have been the single best-received joke in his entire body of work, a moment that went halfway to solving the third act. During the climactic fight that results in Felix's departure, he had Oscar say, You leave me little notes on my pillow. I told you a hundred times I can't stand little notes on my pillow. We're all out of cornflakes. F you. It took me three hours to figure out F you was Felix Unger. The laugh the almost dirty line got from a customarily prim Boston audience the first night was so long that even Mathau, who was used to milking every moment, had nothing to do but stand there until it died down. We have no reprise of a song here, so we'll go out on that joke. It's one of the best. One thing that all the subjects of the first season of Where Have You Gone have in common is the depth of information about them and connections to them. With any of our first 13 subjects, the ability to enjoy them is virtually unlimited. One of the joys of the first 13 episodes has been the interviews. Neil Verma, Paul Bonesteel, Nick Parisi, Wallace Strobe, John Sergal, Greg Brown, Nick Vega, Bob Gale, Dan Moyer, Adam Rodman, Maureen Lee Lenker, Oriana Nudo, Audrey Kupferberg, and Donna Halper were all generous with their time and their enthusiasm about the subjects, and I thank them. Another joy of this entire endeavor has been working with my son and producer, Alan Eckhouse. I think he knows that. If he doesn't, he knows it now. No need to get sloppy about it. I'm Morris Eckhaus, host of Where Have You Gone? Our music was composed and performed by Harry Richardson. Our logo was designed by Jeff Santala. The Where Have You Gone podcast is produced by Alan Eckhaus. Where Have You Gone is a production of The Morwin Company.